quotidien. C'est sur Taïwan. dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. It is an area which we call the mystical underground. podcast, we start with an introduction and we mention our latest books. And it ends with, Rob's latest novel is Tulpas, available in audio as well as print and ebook. So someone asked me recently, what am I saying when I mention my latest book and what kind of name is that for a book? Okay, it's Tulpas, T-U-L-P-A-S. Tulpas, in Buddhist lore, are semi-autonomous beings created through deep meditation by monks in the Himalayan monasteries. In this story, one particularly resourceful tulpa has not only broken free from its creator, but has learned how to create its own tulpas within an alternate dream world. It's not long before he has created dozens who have spawned hundreds, then thousands of tulpas, all intent on penetrating our physical world and taking control of every country on earth. So when the book opens, the Tulpas have recently entered our world and are organized in an army called Dominion. In this podcast, I'm going to read the prologue and the first chapter. Alex, just as I settled down for breakfast in the sunny courtyard of the old hacienda converted to hotel, my phone vibrated. I really wanted to sit here amid the flowering bougainvillea and enjoy a leisurely breakfast, but I sensed that wasn't going to happen. Shara had called me half an hour ago and said she would text me if there was any news. Her message was brief and urgent. Dom, Heading into Merida. Get out before they take the airport, Alex. Get out now. My empty stomach groaned as my gaze fell on my untouched breakfast of eggs, potatoes, bacon, half an avocado, toast, and coffee. I texted back. Maybe I can still make contact. I started speed eating, but was barely a quarter way through my meal when Shara replied with another text. Alex, no! Go now. Those six journalists captured in Cancun found dead this morning, decapitated on the beach. I gobbled down two more bites, swallowed half a cup of coffee, swiped a cloth napkin across my mouth. I set my plate down on the Mexican tile, courtyard floor next to a dozing, scrawny, pale brown dog and hurried to my room. 
I packed and checked out in five minutes. I stepped out of the Huff's Sienda and looked for a taxi. Carlos at the front desk said there was always one nearby, always except this morning. A tree-lined boulevard cluttered with early morning vendors selling colorful hammocks, fruit, and pastries separated the two lanes of traffic. Maybe if I walked out, of the, out to the boulevard, I could flag a taxi from either direction. I spotted a truck across the way loaded with armed men dressed in black. Instinctively, I stepped back toward the shadows of the hacienda wall. I wasn't afraid, just cautious. I had already been lucky as a journalist. I'd always been lucky as a journalist in foreign lands and made friends with the locals, even when they had good reason not to be friendly to an American. But I'd had a couple close encounters with Dominion forces in Cancun two days ago and had barely avoided capture when I turned a corner and nearly collided with several armed men in black, armed kids actually, they looked about 14 at best. My press badge was in full view and that was probably what set them off. I kept my head down and moved around them, hoping they would ignore me. One of them ordered me to stop, but I kept going, Matalo, kill him. The instant I heard the command, I bolted into an office building, raced up a staircase and down a hall. I clambered out an emergency exit and jumped the last six feet to an alleyway. I spotted more armed men at one end, their backs to me. I darted out in the other direction and merged into a crowded market. I knew I needed to flee Cancun. I took another step back under the awning of the hotel and bumped into someone. Lo siento, sorry. A lean, grizzled old man with a scraggly white goatee nodded and smiled, revealing crooked front teeth. I expected him to hold out his palm and automatically reached into my pocket for change. To my surprise, the viejo addressed me in fractured English, a nasal tone. His voice was high-pitched for a man, and some of the words literally squeaked out of his mouth. You want dominion? I take you. See, see, I take you to El Jefe. Only fifty dollars. I let the change drop back in my, into my pocket. Since arriving in Merida yesterday afternoon, I had made several inquiries about meeting a Dominion leader. I'd guessed the, that Dominion was coming here and figured in it an advanced team was on the streets. Now I was torn between doing my job and saving my neck. I never had that phrase meant more. I hesitated, then made a bargain with, with myself. Twenty dollars, no more. I figured the old man would walk away. But I was wrong. Twenty-five and I take you right now. How do I know you? I can trust you? Es facile. Do you no pay until you meet El Jefe? I don't mean the money. How do I know it's safe? Seguro. Tu no sabes? Yo no sé. Great. No assurances. It sounded damn risky especially after what Shara had texted me. 36 was too young to die. Shara would get over it. After all, we were separated, heading for divorce. However, our daughter, Carrie, who just turned 12, would be devastated. She kept saying she wanted to live with me rather than her mom and Charles. 
whom she despised. A taxi eased up to the front of the hacienda. The driver leaned toward the curb and called out, Aeropuerto? That made up my mind. Si, un momento. I turned to the old man as I pulled out a $20 bill. Take this for your trouble. Su trabajo. The old man waved off the bill. I go with you. El jefe está allá. Go ahead. He's at the airport. Si, si, vamonos. I hesitated a moment, then shrugged. Whatever. We both climbed into the back of the taxi. Maybe I could get an interview and get out safely. That was my plan, sketchy as it was. As the taxi pulled away from the curb, I decided to see how much the old man knew about Dominion. Mi nombre es Alex Brooks. Como te llamas? Hector. I started to ask another question, but he held up a hand, nodded towards the driver, and touched a finger to his lips. Spatter tail. El jefe will answer your questions. As if on command, the blare of salsa filled the car, and the driver kept fiddling with the volume of the radio. I settled back in my seat and stared out the window, feeling a sense of unease about all of this. We moved through the narrow, cobbled streets, lined by one-story shops, most of them painted a pale green, and gradually the old city fell behind, and a few minutes later, we arrived at our destination on the outskirts of town. The airport seethed with bedlam. Dozens of distraught and confused people, many of them tourists, milled outside the entrance with their luggage. Soldiers in black uniforms and berets directed traffic, patrolled the crowd, and guarded the entrances. Shit, they're here. But what did I expect? Just one friendly representative of Dominion waiting for me? The taxi stopped, and the driver opened the trunk and took out my luggage. Buen suerte, the driver hissed as I paid him. I would need more than good luck, I thought grimly. Turning toward the entrance, Hector moved directly toward a small group of Dominion soldiers. He spoke briefly to one of them, then motioned me to follow him and the soldier who cut a path through the crowd. Foreign and Mexican passengers were on their phones trying to get answers, trying to find a way out, their lives on hold. Worry, anger, and indignation rolled off them in waves. Some were here on business, no doubt, but the couples, especially the ones with children, were on vacation. The families reminded me of what was missing in my life. I'd taken this assignment partially to escape my ravaged personal life. I'd returned from a three-day trip to Los Angeles and found Shara and Carrie were gone. They left a note telling me she'd moved out. We'd grown apart and she'd gotten too close to her partner, FBI agents in love. That was three months ago and she was trying to make it up by feeding me as much information as she could about Dominion. The problem was that very little was known about the group. They mater they'd materialized in Mexico as if out of nowhere. The soldier leading Hector motioned toward the guards at the entrance, and they immediately opened the doors. Bossman must have known we were coming and told the guards to let us in. I caught a brief glimpse of myself in the tinted window next to the doors. I looked burdened and disheveled. My usual trim beard, bushy, khaki brown hair, must. Still young, but feeling the years, the extra pounds I'd gained since 
The breakup didn't help my appearance either. I'd been told that I should be doing television news, not because of my reporting abilities, but because of my supposed rugged good looks, square jaw, straight nose, pale blue eyes. But the only appeal television news had for me was the possibility of a bigger paycheck. Print journalists were still the best as far as I was concerned. The chaos outside the airport was matched by the turmoil inside. A rippling black wave of armed men moved across the concourse. Here and there, groups of travelers huddled together on the floor, soldiers holding them at gunpoint. Workers in the shops looked stunned and frightened. We were guided to an unmarked door, entered it into a private lounge. The chaos vanished. A hostess greeted us in Spanish and English and asked if we would like to order food and drinks. Hector waved off, waved her off, and led me past the comfortable chairs and couches to a table in the far corner. I took a seat and was surprised when Hector joined me. I scanned the empty room, waiting. Hector stared at me, his arms folded over his chest. Donde soy jefe? Aquí. Right here, Hector said. You're looking at him. He held out his left hand, his pal showing his palm, revealing a tattoo of a trident inside of a circle. What do you want to know? Hector's crisp English had lost its thick Spanish accent. Whoa, well, I'm confused. What are you talking about? I'm telling you that I'm in charge, commander-in-chief of all Dominion forces. It seemed unlikely. Yet there was a d distinct change, not only in his speech, but the way he held himself, and oddly enough, his appearance. I definitely wouldn't mistake this man for a beggar. He donned wire room glasses and looked more like an intellectual, or maybe even the leader of a rebel group. What's your full name? This interview is about Dominion, not me. Just call me Hector, and don't ask anything about my background. Can I record the interview? No recordings, no notes. Just listen and remember, I am testing you. What did that mean? Okay. Why did your militia take the take on the same name and uniform as the rebels in I Iceland who overran the, ca the government last week. We are not a cap cap co copycat movement, as the international press has claimed. We are the same. We are one. We are dominion, and the truth will soon be known. Why were the journalists killed in Cancun? Many people died there. But why the journalists? They weren't com combatants. Our followers are sometimes overly enthusiastic in their missions. They see the journalists as propag propagators of lies. I nervously tap my index finger against the table, wishing I could be writing what I was hearing. I would take notes as soon as I could. About your followers, why are people so attracted to Dominion? They understand that we are saviors, that we are the future, that we will lead them from poverty and hopelessness. They know that those who oppose us must be eliminated. Simple as that. He sounded dangerous and simple-minded. So the rich are your enemy. Not necessarily. The well-to-do are welcome to join our cause. But there will be no more free rides for them. No more socialism for the rich. What about the poor? Everyone deserves a place to live, food, and health care. How can you guarantee any of that? Hector leaned closer to me, his expression intense. We are here to bring the world into balance with appropriate population, with appropriate 
distribution of wealth. Where are you from? Earth, just like you, just like all the Dominion leadership. I am descended from the mind of man. What the hell was he talking about? How are you going to control the birth rate? I didn't say anything about the birth rate. You must listen better. He abruptly stood up. That's all I will tell you now. You will be put on a private jet to Miami. You will write the truth. If you don't, expect to die like the others in your profession. Shaken and baffled, I stood and picked up my luggage. I wanted to ask why I was getting the story, but decided not to push my luck. Hector guessed my thoughts. I selected you because you survived Cancun and came to the right place at the right time. How did you get there? Oddly, the question made me uneasy. Well, I took a bus. I remember, I remember ducking into the bus station and looking for a bus to Merida. Hector smiled. Oh, did you? Think carefully about that. You might learn something more very important. What the hell did that mean? I just wanted to get away from him and to Miami. Hector stood erect and seemed younger and more capable than the old man I'd met. I won't mislead you, Alex. I have no need for deception. But you and the world are not yet ready for the truth. When the time is right, all will be known. Chapter 1. Blind Date. Lang. It must be nuts to go on a blind date with a police psychologist. That's what Sal said, and my old buddy didn't know how close to the truth he'd come with that comment. Maybe I was nuts, and just wanted to confirm it. I considered the matter from behind the wheel of my pickup, parked in the lot outside the Hogfish Grill on Stock Island. It wasn't really a blind date, more of a digital one. I'd met Risa Ferraro through an online service. We'd exchanged a few text messages before agreeing to meet. There, that's her. A slender redhead in a sky blue dress and block heel sandals crossed the pavement from a sedan and passed within 20 feet of me. She paused outside the entrance and looked back as if sensing my presence. Perceptive, I thought. As I got out, she turned away. Hey there. She let go of the door handle and slowly swiveled her head. I smiled, waved awkwardly. Hey there yourself. Was she smiling or smirking? She placed a hand on her hip, a seductive pose. Or was she annoyed? I was 46 and felt like I was going on my first date. Since my divorce eight years ago, I'd gone out with women who, for the most part, were friends of friends and, like me, divorced. To my surprise, some of them, well, actually, most of them, didn't want to waste time getting to know me. They wanted dinner and off to the sack. I thought it was men who wanted to skip the small talk and head to the bedroom. So I was surprised when women got impatient with me and moved on to the next guy. It seemed like a reversal of traditional roles. Tonight was going to be different. I was dating someone who listened to others as a profession, and I had something unusual to talk about. The thing that was making me feel a little nuts. Hello, Risa. You are Risa, I hope. I am. If you're Bruce Lang, she said in a throaty laugh. Then let's go. I motioned with my hand. She was a decade my junior, fit and attractive. And I'd been pleasantly surprised when she decided to go out with me. 
Do I look like my picture? She asked, pausing as he opened the door. Even better. A beat passed. No kidding. Then I guess I'm not very photogenic. I didn't mean it that way. She touched my shoulder. Relax, man. We're in the keys. Yeah, I noticed. A hostess motioned us to a table with a waterfront view of the harbor. The restaurant was Key West casual, without the tourist crowd that thronged Duval Street, a funky place with wood tables and a bar, with benches instead of chairs. A long-time Key West resident, Risa had chosen the place, a local hangout. 6 p.m. on a Friday, every bar stool was taken, and more than half the tables were occupied, mostly locals, a few tourists, and at the end of the bar, two middle-aged men, both of them carrying, one with an ankle holster, the other with a weapon on his hip. Off-duty cops, I guessed. Risa noticed my gaze. That's Anderson and Waz, Monroe County deputies. You want to say hi to them? That they're not my friends. Clients, maybe. She smiled. Or friends of clients. The waitress came by and we ordered beers. So Risa Ferraro, police psychologist, who doesn't date cops, she met my gaze. Bruce Lang, retired police detective, Miami Beach, now a mystery writer living on Sugarloaf Key. Guessing that novel did fairly well for you, Bruce. Retiring in your mid-40s? Especially after it was optioned for a television series, I gave up my rights on it and a chance to be a producer and took the money. They can they can do whatever they want with it. Of course, I'm hoping for the best. A couple of beats passed. Isn't sugar life, sugar loaf a little boring for a single guy? Not yet. I get plenty of visitors in the winter and lobster season. My former partner at Miami Dade, Sal, lives on Big Big Pine and runs a bait shop. No, we fish a couple times a month. Risa rested her chin in her palm. Okay, let's hear it. Why would a retired cop want to go out with a police psychologist? She didn't waste any time. I wanted to talk to you, uh, to someone who would listen. I've got a story. Oh, so you figured it was cheaper on a date than an office visit. Is that it? I'm not asking for professional services, just an ear. The beer arrived, and I opened the menu. What's good here? Risa tapped the menu. Hogfish sandwich with Swiss cheese, onion, and mushroom is my fave. Everything's good. Fresh fish every day. You can bring your own catch, and they'll cook it for you and Sal or whoever. After we ordered, Risa sat back and crossed her arms. Is this about a cold case that you've been brooding over? You know who did. You know who did it, but can't get the evidence right. There was that, but not what I wanted to talk about. Good, good guess, but wrong. In our exchange of text messages. I told her I'd worked the last nine years of my career on cold cases. There were some interesting ones, but I didn't take any of them into retirement with me. Okay, what's on your mind, Lang? Never cared for the name Bruce. Sounds too much like booze and bruise. And reminds me of my work with cops. Yeah, I can see that. Lang is fine. So tell me your story. I wasn't expecting to 
get into it this fast. I figured we'd get to know each other first, at least share some idle chatter. But here I was, getting rushed into something again with another date. What the hell? I thought a moment, not wanting to make it sound either too strange or too insignificant. Well, I had a dream that wasn't like any dream I'd ever had. I was awake, I was there, only it wasn't me. It was like I was inside someone else. I was watching this person's life through his eyes. I finally started to worry that I was becoming the person. That's how it ended. I jolted awake and for a moment was confused about where I was and who I was. Pretty strange, huh? Yeah, but I'm missing something. Yeah, but I'm missing something. That's what happened to me. You haven't heard what happened to him. She sip, sipped her beer. Tell me. Don't leave anything out. I'll tell you what I remember. The man's name is Alex Brooks. He's in his mid-thirties. He's an investigative reporter for an online news agency. I think he lives somewhere in Florida, and he's in Mexico. There's an uprising or a revolution involving a group called Dominion. I took another swallow of my beer, and I reached the point of my story where Alex was leaving his hotel in Merida with an old man, Hector, who promised to take him to meet the leader of Dominion. That's when I woke up and drank a glass of water. I was really confused because for several seconds I thought I was in Mexico and wondered what I was doing in bed. Risa lifted her head and cleared her throat as the two cops from the bar approached our table. Gentlemen, how are things this evening? Ankle holster spoke up. Hey, Risa, I got something to say to you. Shoot was... He grinned, as if he thought her reply was a joke. You could have gone easy on Emilio. He was a good guy. It wasn't my decision, but it was your recommendation. That's all I've got to say. He stared a moment at Lang, studying him. You look familiar. Who do you work for? My stomach tensed. I felt uneasy under his gaze. Myself. Good for you. They walked off as the waitress arrived with our fish sandwiches. What was that about? Or don't you want to talk about it? Drugs, booze, abuse, and suicide. The dark side. Yeah. You don't have to go into it. I wanted to ask her what she thought of my dream, but I could see she was upset, and as we ate, she told me the story of a narcotics cop who got too deep underground and lost his direction. She tried to help him and recommended that he be transferred off narcotics and given a desk job until he re recovered from his addiction. He reacted by pistol-whipping two suspected drug dealers and beating up his girlfriend. He was suspended, then fired, when he refused to meet Risa for any more counseling sessions. A week later, he shot himself in the head outside her office. I had to step over his body to get out of my office and the rumor started that I went to lunch, that I was cold, a cold-hearted bitch. Did you? I sat in my car and cried for half an hour. I kept it to myself. It's better for a woman to be seen as tough than weak. Or so I thought. I believe it. Problem is, I'm not a cop. I'm a psychologist with a contract with the sheriff's office. So I'm seen as an outsider. She paused. Enough about me. That dream of yours... What's it mean to you? 
I was hoping you would tell me. But let me continue. There's more to it. I went back to bed, and the dream picked up where it left off. We arrived at the airport. You and the old man, Hector? Right. I'd written all I remembered as soon as I had awakened, yet I was certain that I would have recalled this dream even if I hadn't written a word. It was so real, so unusual. When I finished relating all the details, I pushed my empty beer bottle toward the middle of the table. Like I said, I felt like I was there. Risa remained silent for a few moments, lost in thought. It's puzzling, I'll say that. But one thing you said might be key. What's that? Hector told you that he was descended from the mind of man. To me, that suggests your unconscious mind is telling you that the characters were spun out of your imagination and represent different aspects of your personality. Oh, so you think it was just a dream. What else would it be? I shrugged. I, I don't know. It's just odd that I wasn't the main character. That I was part of this guy, Alex, or inside his head. It wasn't like a regular dream. Dreams can be very creative like that, but usually the scenarios are reflected reflections of the elements of the everyday world. For example, your Dominion militia sounds like ISIS with the black uniforms, but they weren't fighting in the East. Not that I could tell. I know, Mexico is a place to the south, down below us, like the unconscious. Also, Iceland, odd place for rebellion. But dreams sometimes include puns. Think about it, Iceland, Isis, or Isil. That sounds sort of similar. And the message of Isis is, or was, world dominion. I shrugged. Yeah, you're right. I should have known you'd be able to disassemble my dream. She reached out and touched my hand. I'm just helping you understand it. I'm not trying to belittle you. She drew her hand back, shook her head, and laughed. Here I am counseling a cop. Just what I said I didn't want to do on a date. Ex-cop. I sat up in my chair. Wait. Oh, shit. I just realized something that I overlooked. Alex and I both have ex-wives who were FBI agents. Alex's ex is named Shara. Mine is Sharon. We both have one daughter. But their names and ages are different. My Jennifer is in college. His Carrie is a preteen. Risa scrutinized me as if I were some sort of strange bug. Promise me one thing, Lang. If you have any more of these dreams, don't call you, right? He said, finishing her sentence. Actually, no. I'll have another busman's holiday with you. Most likely, the dream was a one-time phenomenon. If it happens again, though, with the same dream character, I might rethink what I said. Why do you say that? Who knows? Maybe your unconscious mind is projecting into an alternate reality. It's, a, it's possible, but not very likely. It was no doubt a playful comment, but I had a response for her. Interesting. Guess I should tell you then. What? I've already had a second one. That's what made it so disturbing. It gets more complicated. Oh, really? Well, don't hold out on me. I want to hear it. 
but let's go somewhere else. How about my place, I blurted. She studied me a moment, undecided. I'm not a serial killer, if that's what you're wondering. She laughed. I didn't think so. Okay, let's go. If you found this story interesting, in spite of my verbal stumbles, I hope you'll pick up a copy of Tulpa's. It's available on Amazon and from the publisher Crossroad Press, in print, as an ebook, and in audio. And no, I didn't read it. A professional book reader did. Oh, and here's what it says about the book on the back cover. Inception meets Westworld in an original sci-fi novel about a parallel universe only a dream away. In Tibetan Buddhism, tulpas are human-like creatures created through deep meditation. In this compelling story, tulpas take over the subconscious world in a parallel universe where they quickly become invincible. For Bruce Lang and Risa Ferraro, on this side of that dream world, the Tulpa army is just a puzzling nightmare. But for their counterparts on the other side, Alex Brooks and Lydia Cabrera, the Tulpa army dominion is far too real. As the states of reality and dreams converge in an inevitable clash that may destroy all consciousness in both universes, the four must band together to save what is left of reality. The end. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. Well, not exactly the end. If you've listened this far, I've got another chapter I'm going to read. Chapter 2. The Interview. Alex. I looked around my spare, uh, sparsely furnished condo, hunting for my keys. Not too many places for them to hide in my tiny box on the 19th floor of the Waverly. I didn't consider my sterile two-bedroom abode as home, but rather a place to crash when I wasn't traveling. I loved our house in Winter Park, but I couldn't stay there after Shara and Carrie left. Too many memories. Once I was certain they weren't coming back, I rented the place and moved downtown. Well, Orlando's version of downtown, a mini downtown. I stepped out on the porch to see if I'd left the keys on the low table next to the chair where I liked to sit and take in the view of nearby Lake Eola. I moved back inside and spotted a lump under a manila envelope at the end of the kitchen counter. I lifted the envelope and snatched my keys. I was out the door in seconds, locking it, then striding down the hall. For a moment, I thought I should go back for my laptop, but then I realized there was no need for it. 
regretfully, I would be the interviewee, not the interviewer. As I waited for the elevator, I reviewed everything that had happened over the past few days. I'd scored a journalistic coup with my interview with a man who described himself as the Commander-in-Chief of Dominion. The article was picked up by news outlets around the world. Hector's proclamation that Dominion was a worldwide movement was widely dismissed. However, the article, combined with rumors that Dominion forces were gathering in, in several countries, prompted governments around the world to go on high alert. I was inundated by calls from reporters who wanted to question me, almost as if I were a spokesman for the group. The alternative, getting their own interviews, was a difficult and dangerous task, especially in the aftermath of the slaughter of the captured journalists. Rather than answering questions over and over again, I decided to hold press conference in the bandstand on Lake Yola, 10-minute walk. But first I had a personal interview. A local TV reporter, Lydia Cabrera, pestered me for the past two days with calls and emails and even a couple of visits to the lobby of my building. She pleaded with me to give her an interview. Grudgingly, I'd agreed to do so one hour before the press conference. Now I was regretting that my decision. Sure, she was persuasive and persistent, but so were other reporters. I agreed to meet her at the top of the parking garage where she said she could capture the cityscape in the background. I realize now there was another reason for that location. The concierge had called me five minutes ago and said the reporters were gathering in the lobby waiting for me, even though the press conference would be in the bandstand show half a mile away. I rode the elevator to the rear exit, crossed the street to the parking garage, and took the steps two at a time to the roof. Half a dozen cars were parked under the sun. I spotted a white van with station calling letters covering the sides and satellite TV dish antenna rising like an enormous invasive weed from the top of the van. Next to it was a cameraman and a dark-haired woman in black slacks and a pale blue blouse. She wore high heels and held a microphone in her hand. I headed over to them, introduced myself, and shook their hands. Lydia was attractive with bold features, large eyes and full lips, a long thin nose. She was someone who caught your attention, and I'd definitely seen her on the local news. I'm not sure what I can tell you that wasn't in the article. She had a ready answer. Not everyone who watches the news read your article, though they might have heard about it. She smiled and moved closer. I started feeling mesmerized, then checked myself, noting that I was just the story of the day, nothing more. Besides, I'm assuming no one was asking you questions when you wrote the article. I've got a few. I bet. Let's go over to the corner so we can get more skyline and less concrete in the frame, she said. We're, we're going live with this exclusive. We'll have it at least an hour ahead of anyone else. I couldn't help thinking the so-called exclusive was going to be a rehash of my article published two days ago. I glanced at my watch. Let's do it then. As I said, five minutes, that's it. After a few minutes of preparation and cell phone chatter with a producer at the station, Lydia was on the air talking about Dominion and their rapid expansion 
across Mexico and into Central America. She summarized my article, then turned to me. Alex Brooks, one of the most puzzling aspects of Dominion is their supposed connection with the group that overthrew the government in Iceland, and now there are militias using the same name in Malaysia, Guatemala, and Spain. What can you tell me about that? The man I interviewed, who called himself Commander-in-Chief of Dominion, boasted that the movement was spread worldwide. He said the Mexican and Icelandic Dominion were part of the same militia. But where did they originate? Where are they from? I don't know. I thought the commander, who only gave his name as Hector, was Mexican when I met him, but later his speech changed, and strangely enough, he looked different to me. How so? How different? He looked younger and more Caucasian, and I thought I heard a hint of a British accent. What about their philosophy? You wrote that they're not religious, but their followers are from all religions and political stripes. How could that be? Well, it could be propaganda, as I pointed out in the article, but it does seem that Dominion has an appeal that's hard to quantify. Somehow, they're uniting people in their cause. Even Mexican soldiers who are supposed to be fighting them are taking off their uniforms and joining Dominion. I suppose the benefits for the Mexicans is seeing an economic, improved living conditions, but with that message, uh, work in Western countries. As she spoke, a black suburban moved slowly in our direction and stopped a hundred feet away. The doors opened, and to my amazement, Hector stepped out the passenger side. Three others joined him, triple, extra-large, beefy guys dressed in Dominion uniforms, their faces hidden by black ski mask. We've got trouble. Lydia and the cameraman turned as the three goons rushed forward. Two of them shoved me and the cameraman, and the third one wrapped a muscular arm around Lydia's waist and picked her up like a rag doll. She screamed, kicking her legs and beating her fists against his back as she was dragged to the Suburban. Just before they reached the vehicle, she ripped off his ski mask, scratching his cheeks as she did so. You crazy fucking bitch, she shouted. Pulled her head back by the hair, punched her jaw, knocking her out. The cameraman struggled to get past the intruders. He snatched up his tripod and swung his camera, but it bounced off one of the burly men's shoulders. The, <coughs> the Dominion thug retaliated by driving the cameraman back to the edge of the roof and against a three-foot concrete barrier. He lifted him up and tossed him headfirst off the roof. The cameraman's cry lasted barely two seconds before he slammed into the ground. The other masked thug pulled my arm tightly behind me and jammed my wrists between my shoulder blades. He kicked my feet out from under, under me and I fell forward, my chest and chin striking the pavement. Ski mask held onto my arms and pressed a boot into my lower back. Hector leaned over me. Pay attention, Alex Brooks, or you will join the cameraman. No press conference. The media is trying to stir up fear. That's not good. If you look at your history, you'll see that fear and suspicion are what has eroded your democracy and turned it into a game of power plays among corporate entities and individuals with great wealth. You're living with the results of that divisive enterprise. But we are here to unify America and the world. 
Let the woman go. She didn't do anything. She's collateral. You write what I tell you or she dies. Let her go. Take me. Suit yourself. We'll take both of you. The Suburban pulled up and I was shoved into the back seat. Lydia was lying on her side in the rear of the vehicle. A moment later, a hood was pulled over my head. Everything went black and I felt a noose tightening around my neck. That's to keep you from jumping out, Hector said as the Suburban pulled away. Try it. You'd be dragged and choked. End of chapter 2